Chapter Three of the Lost Stradivarius. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Reading by Mary Rohde. The Lost Stradivarius by J. Mead Faulkner. Chapter Three. It was in the same summer of 1842 and near the middle of june that my brother john wrote inviting me to come to oxford for the commemoration festivities i had been spending some weeks with mrs temple a distant cousin of ours at their house of royston in derbyshire and john was desirous that mrs temple should come up to oxford and chaperone her daughter constance and myself at the balls and various other entertainments which take place at the close of the summer term. Owing to Royston being some two hundred miles from Worth Maltravers, our families had hitherto seen little of one another. But during my present visit I had learned to love Mrs. Temple, a lady of singular sweetness of disposition, and had contracted a devoted attachment to her daughter Constance. Constance Temple was then eighteen years of age, and to great beauty united such mental graces and excellent traits of character as must ever appear to reasoning persons more enduringly valuable than even the highest personal attractions. She was well-read and witty, and had been trained in those principles of true religion which she afterwards followed with devoted consistency in the self-sacrifice and resigned piety of her too short life. In person I may remind you, my dear Edward, since death removed her, ere you were of years to appreciate either her appearance or her qualities, she was tall, with somewhat long and oval face, with brown hair and eyes, Mrs. Temple readily accepted Sir John Maltravers' invitation. She had never seen Oxford herself, and was pleased to afford us the pleasure of so delightful an excursion. John had secured convenient rooms for us above the shop of a well-known print-seller in High Street, and we arrived in Oxford on Friday evening, June 18, 1842. I shall not dilate to you on the various commemoration festivities, which have probably altered little since those days, and with which you are familiar. Suffice it to say that my brother had secured us admission to every entertainment, and that we enjoyed our visit as only youth with its keen sensibilities and uncloyed pleasures can. I could not help observing that John was very much struck by the attractions of Miss Constance Temple, and that she, for her part, while exhibiting no unbecoming forwardness, certainly betrayed no aversion to him. I was greatly pleased both with my own powers of observation, which had enabled me to discover so important a fact, and also with the circumstance itself. To a romantic girl of nineteen, it appeared high time that a brother of twenty-two should be at least preparing some matrimonial project, and my friend was so good and beautiful 
that it seemed impossible that I should ever obtain a more lovable sister, or my brother a better wife. Mrs. Temple could not refuse her sanction to such a scheme, for while their mental quality seemed eminently compatible, John was, in his own right, master of Worth Maltravers, and her daughter sole heiress of the Royston estates. The commemoration festivities terminated on Wednesday night with a grand ball at the music room in Hollywell Street. This was given by a lodge of university Freemasons, and John was there with Mr. Gaskell, whose acquaintance we had made with much gratification, both wearing blue silk scarves and small white aprons. They introduced us to many other of their friends similarly adorned, and these important and mysterious insignia sat not amiss with their youthful figures and boyish faces. After a long and pleasurable program, it was decided that we should prolong our visit till the next evening, leaving Oxford at half-past ten o'clock at night, and driving to Didcot, there to join the mail for the West. We rose late the next morning, and spent the day rambling among the old colleges and gardens of the most beautiful of English cities. At seven o'clock we dined together for the last time at our lodgings in High Street, and my brother proposed that before parting we should enjoy the fine evening in the gardens of St. John's College. This was at once agreed to, and we proceeded thither, John walking on in front with Constance and Mrs. Temple, and I following with Mr. Gaskell. My companion explained that these gardens were esteemed the most beautiful in the university, but that under ordinary circumstances it was not permitted to strangers to walk there of an evening. Here he quoted some Latin about Aurum Vermerios Irresatelites, which I smilingly made as if I understood, and did indeed gather from it that John had bribed the porter to admit us. It was a warm and very still night, without a moon, but with enough of fading light to show the outlines of the garden front. This long, low line of buildings, built in Charles I's reign, looked so exquisitely beautiful that I shall never forget it, though I have not since seen its oriel windows and creeper-covered walls. There was a very heavy dew on the broad lawn, and we walked at first only on the paths. No one spoke, for we were oppressed by the very beauty of the scene, and by the sadness which an imminent parting from friends and from so sweet a place combined to cause. John had been silent and depressed the whole day, nor did Mr. Gaskell himself seem inclined to conversation. Constance and my brother fell a little way behind, and Mr. Gaskell asked me to cross the lawn if I was not afraid of the dew, that I might see the garden front to better advantage from the corner. Mrs. Temple waited for us on the path, not wishing to wet her feet. As we stood silent and listening, Mr. Gaskell pointed out the beauties of the perspective as seen from his vantage point, and we were fortunate in hearing the sweet descant of nightingales for which this garden has ever been famous. As we stood silent and listening, 
a candle was lit in a small oriel at the end, and the light showing the tracery of the window added to the picturesqueness of the scene. Within an hour we were in a landau driving through the still warm lanes to Didcot. I had seen that Constance's parting with my brother had been tender, and I am not sure that she was not in tears during some part, at least, of our drive. But I did not observe her closely, having my thoughts elsewhere. Though we were thus being carried every moment further from the sleeping city, where I believed that both our hearts were busy, I feel as if I had been a personal witness of incidents I am about to narrate. So often have I heard them from my brother's lips. The two young men, after parting with us in the high street, returned to their respective colleges. John reached his room shortly before eleven o'clock. He was at once sad and happy, sad at our departure, but happy in a new-found world of delight which his admiration for Constance Temple opened to him. He was, in fact, deeply in love with her, and the full flood of a hitherto unknown passion filled him with an emotion so overwhelming that his ordinary life seemed transfigured. He moved, as it were, in an ether superior to our mortal atmosphere, and a new region of high resolves and noble possibilities spread itself before his eyes. He slammed his heavy outside door, called an oak, to prevent anyone entering, and flung himself into the window seat. Here he sat for a long time, the sash thrown up and his head outside, for he was excited and feverish. His mental exultation was so great, and his thoughts of so absorbing an interest, that he took no notice of time, and only remembered afterwards, that the scent of a syringa bush was borne up to him from a little garden patch opposite, and that a bat had circled slowly up and down the lane until he heard the clock striking three. At the same time the faint light of dawn made itself felt almost imperceptibly. The classic statues on the roof of the schools began to stand out against the white sky, and a faint glimmer to penetrate the darkened room. It glistened on the varnished top of his violin case lying on the table, and on a jug of toast and water placed there by his college servant or scout every night before he left. He drank a glass of this mixture, and was moving towards his bedroom door, when a sudden thought struck him. He turned back, took the violin from its case, tuned it, and began to play the Areopagita suite. He was conscious of that mental clearness and vigor which not unfrequently comes with the dawn to those who have sat watching or reading through the night. And his thoughts were exalted by the effect which the first consciousness of a deep passion causes in imaginative minds. He had never played the suite with more power, and the airs, even without the piano part, seemed fraught with a meaning hitherto unrealized. As he began the Gagliarda, he heard the wicker chair creak, but he had had his back towards it, and the sound was now too familiar to him to cause him even to look round. It was not until he was playing the repeat 
that he became aware of a new and overpowering sensation. At first it was a vague feeling, so often experienced by us all, of not being alone. He did not stop playing, and in a few seconds the impression of a presence in the room other than his own became so strong that he was actually afraid to look round. But in another moment he felt that at all hazards he must see what or who this presence was. Without stopping, he partly turned and partly looked over his shoulder. The silver light of early morning was filling the room, making the various objects appear of less bright color than usual, and giving to everything a pearl-gray neutral tint. In this cold but clear light he saw seated in the wicker chair the figure of a man. In the first violent shock of so terrifying a discovery, he could not appreciate such details as those of features, dress, or appearance. He was merely conscious that, with him in a locked room of which he knew himself to be the only human inmate, there sat something which bore a human form. He looked at it for a moment with a hope, which he felt to be vain, that it might vanish and prove a phantom of his excited imagination. But still it sat there. Then my brother put down his violin, and he used to assure me that a horror overwhelmed him of an intensity which he had previously believed impossible. Whether the image which he saw was subjective or objective, I cannot pretend to say. You will be in a position to judge for yourself when you have finished this narrative. Our limited experience would lead us to believe that it was a phantom conjured up by some unusual condition of his own brain. But we are fain to confess that there certainly do exist in nature phenomena such as baffle human reason and it is possible that for some hidden purposes of providence permission may occasionally be granted to those who have passed from this life to assume again for a time the form of their earthly tabernacle we must i say be content to suspend our judgment on such matters but in this instance the subsequent course of events is very difficult to explain, except on the supposition that there was then presented to my brother's view the actual bodily form of one long diseased. The dread which took possession of him was due, he has more than once told me when analyzing his feelings long afterwards, to two predominant causes. Firstly, he felt that mental dislocation which accompanies the sudden subversion of preconceived theories, the sudden alteration of long habit, or even the occurrence of any circumstance beyond the walk of our daily experience. This I have observed myself in the perturbing effect which a sudden death, a grievous accident, or in recent years the declaration of war, has exercised upon all except the most lethargic or the most determined minds. Secondly, he experienced the profound self-abasement or mental annihilation caused by near conception of a being of a superior order. 
in the presence of an existence wearing, indeed, the human form, but of attributes widely different from and superior to his own, he felt the combined reverence and revulsion which even the noblest wild animals exhibit when brought for the first time face to face with man. The shock was so great that I feel persuaded it exerted an effect on him from which he never wholly recovered. After an interval which seemed to him interminable, though it was only of a second's duration, he turned his eyes again to the occupant of the wicker chair. His faculties had so far recovered from the first shock as to enable him to see that the figure was that of a man perhaps thirty-five years of age, and still youthful in appearance. The face was long and oval, the hair brown, and brushed straight off an exceptionally high forehead. His complexion was very pale or bloodless. He was clean-shaven, and his finely cut mouth, with compressed lips, wore something of a sneering smile. His general expression was unpleasing, and from the first my brother felt, as by intuition, that there was present some malign and wicked influence. His eyes were not visible, as he kept them cast down, resting his head on his hand, in the attitude of one listening. His face and even his dress were impressed so vividly upon John's mind that he never had any difficulty in recalling them to his imagination. And he and I had afterwards an opportunity of verifying them in a remarkable manner. He wore a long cutaway coat of green cloth with an edge of gold embroidery, and a white satin waistcoat figured with rose sprigs, a full cravat of rich lace, knee-breeches of buff silk, and stockings of the same. His shoes were of polished black leather with heavy silver buckles, and his costume in general recalled that worn a century ago. As my brother gazed at him, he got up, putting his hands on the arms of the chair to raise himself, and caused the creaking so often heard before. The hands forced themselves on my brother's notice. They were very white, with long, delicate fingers of a musician. He showed a considerable height, and still keeping his eyes on the floor, walked with an ordinary gait towards the end of the bookcase at the side of the room farthest from the window. He reached the bookcase, and then John suddenly lost sight of him. The figure did not fade gradually, but went out, as it were, like the flame of a suddenly extinguished candle. The room was now filled with the clear light of the summer morning. The whole vision had lasted but a few seconds, but my brother knew that there was no possibility of his having been mistaken, that the mystery of the creaking chair was solved, that he had seen the man who had come evening by evening for a month past, to listen to the rhythm of the Gagliarda. Terribly disturbed, he sat for some time half dreading and half expecting a return of the figure. But all remained unchanged. He saw nothing, 
nor did he dare to challenge its reappearance by playing again the gagliarda which seemed to have so strange an attraction for it at last in the full sunlight of a late june morning at oxford he heard the steps of early pedestrians on the pavement below his windows the cry of a milkman and other sounds which showed the world was awake it was after six o'clock and going to his bedroom he flung himself on the outside of the bed for an hour's troubled slumber End of chapter three